Let's go to Washington, D.C., which is also getting uh, hammered with precipitation this morning. And David Farenthold from the New York Times. First things first, um, uh, shutdown. Doesn't sound like they're heading toward a shutdown. What do you no, think? No, I think you're not. There, there is some, you know, as usual, some drama where people on the right and the Republican caucus don't want to vote for this this bill that's been negotiated to end the sh- to avert a shutdown. But Speaker Johnson seems pretty much determined to avoid that. And I think the House doesn't really have the appetite to toss out another speaker. So I think they're going to find a way to pass it with Democratic votes. Yeah. Uh, part of the deal I see is apparently speeding up the cuts to uh, the IRS enforcement uh, efforts. Is that what you're seeing? Yes. I, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. But, yes, that is one of the sort of uh, stops to the Republicans. OK, so you're saying that's not going to I mean, I'm. I'm a little concerned about this because it just seems so stupid that you wouldn't try to collect tax money that's basically on the table because it's already owed. Does does anybody else see it that way? Right. And and it's not like you're adding taxes. You're just enforcing the taxes that right. are already there. And if you cared a lot about the fiscal stability and the you know balanced budget of America, you think that would, that would be part of it. But nobody likes the IRS. You're never going to get a single vote of anybody saying, I love the IRS. So I can yeah. see why it's an easy political point. Anything on immigration in that bill? No, although I do think there will be some more movement on immigration. It seems like it's you know the, the problem with the border is big enough that Biden really hasn't has an incentive to act. Yeah, I was listening to the State of the State address from the governor of Vermont yesterday because I just spent way too much time on C-SPAN. Wow. But but what what I was what interested me was he's a Republican, right? And what he's saying is that Vermont's problems aren't economic; they're demographic. There's too many old people. Not enough people in Vermont are reproducing, which basically tells me this this is why you need some sort of legal opportunity for younger immigrants to come into this country, because this is a problem that I don't think is just confined to Vermont. You're finding it's hard to find young, healthy people to do those labor intensive jobs that uh, the rest of us don't want to do. A lot of people feel that way. The problem has been, you know, how do you find a way to do that, you know, and, and uh, you know, get it past the Republican Congress? They seem really dead set on stopping any kind of. But they're about a healthy economy, right? I mean, they're, they're about they're worried about the debt. Well, you can't you can't pay off the debt unless you have people generating revenue that can be taxed. Uh, businesses need this labor. They're the party of business as well as being the party of Trump. I think Trump himself brags about all the minorities that he's hired at his hotels. I don't get it. I think the the, uh, the problem now is that we have is so dominated by asylum claims. It's not really built on let's find the people whose labor we need or have the skills yeah. we need. It's become sort of dominated by people using the asylum door, saying I'm persecuted. But that's the country. only door we've left to them. Isn't that why they do right. that? I mean, if you said right. we're, we're looking for young, healthy, strong bodies to, you know, uh, staff our, our daycare centers and our old age homes and, uh, you know, our farms. And if if that's you, come on in. Here's your papers. I agree with you that that, that would be would make a huge difference. But the problem is you'd have to change so many other things to change that. And as you said, Congress can barely pass it, you know, pay its own bills. So I don't think we're headed for a place where they're able to do something that complicated. I also heard they're not even hiring. They didn't approve money to hire more Border Patrol officers. How does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, I know. This is an extremely dysfunctional system. OK, let's talk about Donald Trump and his immunity claim. So if Donald Trump wins on this immunity claim that 
you know, he can do anything as president. This is sort of uh, Richard Nixon come home to roost, isn't it? If the president does it, it, if the president does it, it's legal no matter what it is. Right. So I don't think he's going to win on this. I don't really think he's even. There's a hearing today. I don't really even think that he's, he thinks he can win on this. This is mostly just a delaying tactic. As he's done many, many times, he uses the presidency as an advantage because there's so many novel legal issues presented with, you know, if the president does something he's never done before, how does our system deal with it? In this case, how does the president, you know, he's making a claim about it. You know, the president has absolute immunity. It's probably not going to work, but it, the way our court system, it has to be sort of digested through the appeals court, through the Supreme Court. I think Trump is hoping that by presenting something so weird that he will <laughs> delay this long enough that it'll get pushed past the election. <laughs> okay. And on the 14th Amendment, any any progress in that argument in, in terms of guessing how the Supreme Court might rule? I mean, the Supreme Court, you can't rule a constitutional amendment to be unconstitutional, right? No, but I, I don't think they're going to kick Trump off the ballot. I mean, both because so many of them like Trump and were chosen by Trump, but also because that would mean sort of they had to decide the election, and that's not a role they really want. Uh, so I, I think they're going to find a way to say, well, yes, the you know the, uh, the 14th Amendment says that, but you needed to pass a law sort of describing the procedure by which you determine who is committed insurrection and who should be kicked off the ballot. Nobody did that, so you know it's an unenforceable law. I, I think they're going to find some loophole like that. Yeah, and just to uh, uh, get any updates here, do you do you know why Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, is in the hospital, or have they not disclosed that? No, and I don't even think people in the White House know. It's crazy. And so he was the defense secretary went to the hospital and stayed there for days. Apparently, before they even told the White House that he was he was in, in the hospital, but he's still there. And I, you know, as far as I know, I, no one has no one has told us what he's in there for. But it must be serious. He's been in the hospital yeah. for a week. Is this just a personality quirk of his, or was he trying to sort of not, uh, you know, what, give Russia or, you know, uh, the Palestinians hope that America's military was somehow uh, compromised? I don't think anybody believes that he's that crucial to the day-to-day functioning of the military. Supposedly, it's just that he's very, very, very private, which, you know, that's fine if you're a private citizen. I don't think it really works as a great excuse if you have this much responsibility to the country. David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. 637 Seattle's Morning News. January is National Train Your Dog Month. And many dog owners around the country are unfamiliar with how to set up their pups for success. Current News Radio's Paul Holden is a first-time dog owner, or I guess we say these days, pet parent, and decided to ask an expert for some tips. There's an old saying. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Uh, the short answer is yes, you can. A dog can learn at any age. Probably the bigger factor of how well the dog is going to learn is how persistent and um, consistent can the family be about changing their behavior so that their dog's behavior changes. That's Bradley Pfeiffer, executive director of the Council for Professional Dog Trainers. He tells me that dog training is all about consistency. That's something I've learned as I continue to go through my first experience owning a dog. My 67-pound lab mix dot from the Athens County Dog Shelter in Ohio has been my best friend for six years, but still struggles in some areas, but she isn't the only one. As I've gone through this experience, I realized I wasn't prepared for the training side of dog ownership. Dog training is not something you do. You know, you don't just take a six-week class or attend three private lessons. It has to become kind of a culture of your home, a, a way of life, if you will, so that as your dog matures and goes through different developmental stages, 
that you are remaining consistent with your expectations, that you are putting the time in to teaching your dog the things that they need to know in order to be well-behaved members of your family and the community. Being proactive with your expectations and things like that means, you know, if we don't want our dogs to jump up on guests, then when we come home, we have to be disciplined enough to wait for our dogs to settle or uh, to teach them to sit as they approach us. And sometimes we, within our within our home and our own dogs, we aren't upset about jumping up on us. And maybe we even enjoy our dogs jumping up to greet us in, a, in, a, in an affectionate way. But then we want to reprimand them when they jump up on company. And so I think as long as you have a clear set of guidelines and expectations for your dog and you're consistent about the follow through. If you're looking into training for you and your dog, Pfeiffer does have a helpful reminder. So the CCPD website, which is www.ccpdt.org, has a trainer directory listed there. You can also go to fetchtheanswer.com, which is our consumer-facing website. And on Fetch the Answer, there are a number of resources written by our certificates on training tips and, and, and other kind of just resources, handouts, videos, where you can get some immediate help for your, your dog training needs and also find our trainer directory. It's worth mentioning that... Dog training is an unlicensed profession in the United States. And so, you know, on social media and, and, and on the Internet, you're going to find a lot of popular, famous, if you will, dog trainers that may or may not have demonstrated competence. They just have a strong fan base. And so when you're looking for a dog trainer to help you with your pet, you know, do look for one of our credentials. That is the Certified Professional Dog Trainer Knowledge Assessed, CPDTKA, or uh, Knowledge and Skills Assessed, CPDTKSA. So remember, if you think it's too late for you or your dog to learn something new, that's simply not the case. Paul Holden, Cairo News Radio. We'll continue to follow Paul's adventures as a pet parent. I'm sure you got to sign him up for preschool pretty early. Yeah. And you got to shop for just the right one. New wardrobe. Yeah, the whole thing. Before you start daycare, all of that. Dogs come with as much as children. I was just a little concerned. He was like, oh, you can't just take a three-week, six-week class. I'm like, that's all I got before I became a parent. (laughs) (laughs) During those pre- It's like, what were you? It's like, wow. It's like, geez. Take better care of our dogs. That's right. 649, Seattle's Morning News. Choke points. Let's go. High five drivers in Fife will be starting the new year with a lane shift, but it's weather dependent. Let's go to Chris. Construction on the new I-5 bridges over the Hylobos Creek in Fife is about to wrap up uh, the first piece of the puzzle, and that is the inside lanes of the new bridges there of I-5. That's where the workers have been busy on the inside of the freeway for about the last 10 months. The Washington Department of Transportation's Chris Olson says the work is about to move to the outside of the new bridges. We're just about done building the inner halves of both of those bridges. We've repaved them, you know, we've put down various types of seal, and so now we need to do the striping so that we can move the traffic that's currently on the outsides of I-5 back toward um, the media. The first night for potential striping in the southbound direction is tonight, but of course it is very weather dependent, and the forecast doesn't look great. Olson says the contractor will keep looking for small windows to try to get it done. The weather for restriping thing needs to be um, just right. You have to have the right humidity. You have to have um, the, the ground temperature.
winter. You don't want it to be raining. So there's a lot of different elements that come into play. As I said, the forecast not looking good, but the plan is to stripe the lanes in the southbound direction first uh, whenever they can get that in and then move the travel lanes to the left and onto the new bridge decks. The northbound switch should take place about a week later, again, weather permitting. Olson says drivers shouldn't have much of an issue with this shift to the left. And it really is not going to be that much of a jog to the left. Um, nowhere near as, as dramatic as we've seen as, the, as that jog to the outside right in both directions. Once these traffic shifts are complete, the speed limit will actually return to normal through that work zone. The speed will return to its regulatory 60 miles per hour. There will be an advisory speed of 50 miles per hour because this is an active construction zone. We will have people working fairly close to the highway. So it's a good idea to keep watching your speeds through that construction zone. Olson tells me that people really didn't pay all that much attention to the 50 mile an hour limit through that area. So uh, let's try to you know give those folks a break, especially since they're going to be uh, working really close to you. It should take about 10 more months to build the outside lanes of the new bridge decks, and they should open in late summer or early fall of this year. The next item on the Gateway Project to-do list after this will be the demolition of the old 70th Avenue overpass over I-5. Then construction of the new interchange over I-5 will begin. This interchange will take the expanding 167 over the freeway and onto 509 into the Port of Tacoma. That project should be done, including all the miles of new 167 between Puyallup and I-5 around 2028. 2028. So does that mean in 2028 I could drive from here to Tacoma without encountering any, any construction? Uh, that mm, In 2028? Yeah. Uh, potentially. But just remember, Dave, uh, if you're going from where you are, mm -hmm. you would be at that point potentially mm -hmm. paying an express toll late toll from Bellevue, from your home in Mercer Island, from right. Bellevue to Renton, right. then another one from Renton to Puyallup, and then another one from Puyallup to I-5, yeah. because that section of 167 is also going to be tolled right. in general uh, all the way well, you know, over to I-5. I don't care. As long as I can live to see the day when I can drive from Seattle to Tacoma without encountering any construction. And the good news is, is maybe by 2028, we'll also get a new ferry. <laughs> Hmm. Well, oh, let's not go right. too far. That is the day for a ferry. <laughs> yeah, 2028 is going to be a and great year for and us. maybe even light rail? <laughs> let's not let's get your hopes up. I mean, light rail to where? I don't know. Everett? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. God, that's not till 2041. No. Oh! At least minimum. <laughs> well, across across the floating bridge. Well, that's supposed to be 2025. 2025. Supposed so. to. Well, aren't supposed you Seattleites to, lucky? Hey, come on. Easily. It's getting up to Linwood by the end of this year. I maybe know. third I'm so quarter. Excited. So Me too. Right now, the story that everybody's talking about, the incident that occurred Friday, uh, that Alaska Airlines flight, the emergency exit door plug on the Boeing plane blew out flying over Oregon. For more details, I called up Dan Ronan, who's an aviation expert, pilot, accident investigator at WTOP in Washington, D.C. The current question being asked is whether the door plug was properly bolted into the fuselage. So I asked him to explain how this part of the plane is designed. Well, this is a door gap, Dave, is what it is. And this is a piece of a gap. It is a, you know, a, a pre-manufactured piece that they put in. And this would be where there would be emergency seating uh, on the exit rows. And this is where that would be. In this case, there's no seats there. So they had to put something in there. So they put uh, this in and they make this in the manufacturing plant. The question now becomes, 
when they were manufacturing this, because this is a brand new airplane, just a couple months old, is there a flaw somewhere in the manufacturing process? And now we found out in the last couple of hours that United and other airlines, including Alaska, appear to have found loose bolts on the door plugs, which is raising a lot of concerns within the industry, the FAA and the NTSB. Okay, so the thing is bolted in there. My understanding was, though, it was made in such a way that the 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 door mounting was angled such that even if there was no bolts there, you couldn't pull it through because it's a one-way door. Air pressure yeah. because of the outside air pressure pushing in. That's going to be a question that the NTSB is going to look at. How did this become A, loose, and with the outside air pressure pushing in, how did this happen? It's a question that uh, it's going to take a year or so to find out for the NTSB to work this out. But uh, certainly Boeing and the airlines have got a huge problem on their hands. The other thing is, uh, explain to us what it's like when you have that sudden depressurization, especially of a, a gap that big. It's called explosive decompression, and it, it, it's, it's like a uh, like a gust of wind. Yeah. Um, imagine what it's like when you drive your car down the highway at 60 or 70 miles an hour with the door open and then magnify it by about a factor of 10 because you're going 300 miles per hour and you're climbing and you're in the air. So magnify that experience with the noise, the intensity you're on a climb and you know, you're getting used to your seat. Maybe you're thinking about watching a movie or, uh, or, or maybe thinking about a nap and then all of a sudden one minute there's a hole in the airplane the size of a door and things are being sucked out of the airplane and it is utter chaos. And I'm sure that the passengers who were on this plane were just completely shocked and uh, this is going to be something that they're going to have to deal with for a long time. We're hearing from aviation expert at WTOP, Dan Ronan. I asked to describe just how how powerful the suction can be from a hole like that. It's very powerful. We had reports that uh, the one of the pilots, uh, the first officer in this case, that the actual door for the cabin was was forced open because of the air pressure, the, the heavy reinforced doors that was open, and that the headset that one of the, the first officer was wearing was ripped off of her head. Yikes. Okay, so uh, big deal here. What uh, Has this happened before? Southwest Airlines had an incident a couple of years ago where they had a passenger lose their life when they had a situation where they had a problem where the plane developed a hole in the door and a passenger was sucked out of the airline. I believe it was 2019 that happened. I'd have to check the date. But it does happen occasionally. Uh, and this, when this does happen, it, it's a terrifying situation, and it, it's got to be just incredi- incredibly traumatic. The people I give the credit to on this case are the flight crew the pilots, the flight attendants. They go through emergency decompression training in a simulator all the time. They work on this. They drill on this. But to drill on it and then to actually have it happen is a different set of circumstances. Uh, This is an enormously brilliant piece of flying by the flight crew to keep everybody on the ground. And it comes just within days, Dave, of the 15th anniversary of the miracle on the Hudson. I'm not comparing it to right. that event, but but in many respects, this is the same type of situation that just shows the professionalism that professional airline pilots and flight attendants do their job, and they're really good at it. Aviation expert and pilot at WTOP, Dan Ronan. Thank you, Dan. 
Thank you, Dave. And Chrissy was talking about what decompression is like, and uh, I know they go through training, but I, I, does it involve an actual decompression chamber? Or? That that I don't know, but I do know one thing that came out yesterday that was very interesting is that Boeing designed the Max Nine for the cockpit door to open during a rapid decompression like that. Really, but they didn't tell the, any pilots. Apparently that never made it down to the airlines who are flying that that was kind of that was a design issue yeah. uh, and that that kind of came out yesterday but you know another one of those you know little details not that I'm comparing it to the MCAS but you telling people what the plane is actually designed to do or not do didn't make it down to the people who are actually flying the airplane. So the fact that the, the the cockpit door flew open was, in fact, a feature, not a bug. That is correct, at least according to what we heard yesterday uh, about the decompression system on, on this airplane. So that's another interesting little tidbit in all of this of, you know, from, from and I think the biggest thing that I, from, I hear from a lot of just random people, not just Boeing friends yesterday, the day before was, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, we're looking at the maintenance issues of the airlines as well as going, oh my goodness, you know, what what are we doing here? Uh, and what, what needs to be done from top to bottom, not only, you know, a, from Boeing to Spirit to Alaska to all, all the components involved when it's come to making sure that these uh, pilots and the, and the systems are, are, are operational. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A Bucks County, Pennsylvania man celebrated his 100th birthday in style. And it was his seven-year-old best friend who pulled out all the stops to make the day memorable. Little Layla Peck pulled up to Joe's house in epic fashion. She was riding a Newtown Township fire truck, arrived with sirens and horns blaring for a party like no other. The World War II veteran received a flag flown in his honor over the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. The Newtown Fire and Police Departments came out to shake his hand and wish him well. And Layla brought him 100 handmade cards from her friends at St. Andrew's Catholic School in Newtown. I thought, since he's turning 100, maybe we should make him 100 cards because he, he's a good person. So then we made 100 cards the whole first grade did. Joe used to go to local elementary schools in the area to educate children about his military service and the significance of giving back to your country and service. That's how he and Layla became friends. That's the ultimate reward. Yes. Right? So cute. He's a good person. Yeah. And from the Jen Ursula Show, here is G. Scott. Well, somebody's got to lose, right? Even good teams are going to lose. But by this much? Were you surprised? No. You were not surprised. No. Um, first of all, let me just give credit to both teams that are out there. They were the best teams in college football. University of Washington was phenomenal all season long. They had been phenomenal since the uh, end of last season. They've been winning a long time. <clears throat> they just went up against a team that runs the ball very well. And at the beginning of the game, the uh, the Huskies running back, Dylan Johnson, he was a little banged up. And that's why the outcome was 306 rushing yards by University of Michigan to 41. And in football, when you become one-dimensional, it, it's re, it's really hard to be successful. And yesterday, what we saw is the University of Washington was one-dimensional because of the run game, which they've been very successful at all season. I know that we always, we always talk about Michael Penix, and we always talk about the receivers, but 
Dylan Johnson, what he has done for this team all season long, has been really unheralded. That dude has been really good. And so when you take away that part of the game, it made it a little easier for Michigan to hone in on what they were doing. So they needed a better bench is what you're saying. Well, no, I think they all have a good bench. I mean, it's 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 like Marshawn Lynch going out in the first quarter with yeah. the Seahawks, right? Like, oh, okay, Seahawks, you need a better bench. Well, yeah, but not, you don't have many Marshawn Lynch just hanging out on your bench. And, again, they ran the ball very well. Michigan was it's just a good team. It's a different team. It's a different type of team that UW has faced. They haven't faced that all season long. Um, there was a play. There was a play at the um, – Towards the end of the game, it was a, it was rough because it was UW completes a pass and they're driving, and the refs called a hold on number seventy three. It was rough and it was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they called that hold. You know what stood out to me is when the teammates, the linemen, and uh, the rest of the offense was coming back. They called the flag. They all went to go fist bump seventy three, and the reason why it stood out to me, Colleen, because that action showed me the culture. Remember, I've been talking about culture Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. the University of Washington. It showed me what and how they are about. The reason why they're in a national championship game, because of that action right there. Because of the support, whether they win or lose, whether somebody does a good job or faults. They, Yeah, I, I, I noticed that too, and I'm wondering how many of those players are going to return to the next team, because I think that will tell us a lot about this next season. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I hope they have a lot of guys come back. I mean, let's, well, let's talk about the main guys. I don't think Rome, Aduze, their uh, star wide receiver, I don't think he's going to come back. I think he's going to enter the draft. He's going to be one of the first wide receivers picked in the first round, both he and Michael Harrison Jr. out of Ohio State. I think Michael Penix Jr., I think we just saw the last of him. Mm. So they're going to miss that, right? Yeah. So now you, here's going to be some years now coming up. What's life going to be like without Michael Penix Jr.? And no doubt about it, that dude is special. I had no idea he has had two knee surgery. Like, he is... I don't know, pieced together? He just seems pretty banged up for somebody who hasn't entered the draft yet. Yeah, he's been banged up. Yeah, yeah, he was banged when he played for the University of Indiana when he was out there. And, uh, yeah, he was a little banged up out there. And I was actually shocked when he came out here to Washington. I'm like, ooh, I hope he stays healthy. He did. Okay. You know, he did. He came out here to Washington, and he definitely stayed healthy. Just so young to have knee surgery. <laughs> no. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. see some of these young kids playing these games and go, wow, how long can they last? So yeah. a wide receiver, a quarterback, anybody else? Uh, as far as... You know, some of the main guys, I, I can't think of anybody offhand that's okay. uh, not coming back. Oh, they're, uh, they're, they're tight in at 83, Devin Culp. Uh, he won't be back. I okay. lo- love him. But they have uh, number 37, uh, Westover. He's very good tight end. So, again, I think if you're a Husky fan, you're excited about the program. You're excited about the direction of everything. You, the most important thing is, is let's see, hopefully, Kalen DeBoer signs yeah. another contract and he's here. But, it, look, it was a very good season. They did a very consistent. Considering what has been going on in Seattle, you know, with the uh, you know with the Mariners, and then the Seahawks didn't make the playoffs, so tip of the hat to the Huskies. Yep, yep. amen. G Scott, G News at nine o'clock. Thank you, G. Seattle Morning News, and that's Mickey time. It was an event to promote body positivity at any size, nicknamed Fatcon. Actually, that's the, that's the official name, right? That's the name, Fatcon. 
And uh, held on Friday, and Carnegie's writer Mickey Gomez talked to one of the participants. So uh, was this a big hit? Well, it was a big hit. The Seattle's FatCon sold out. It was a weekend event, and the event manager, Mix Pucks Aplenty, says about 300 patrons visited from all over the world. The FatCon had a panel of doctors, other providers, food vendors, performers, and more. Pucks... Pucks her, is the name? Pucks. Okay. Her preferred name. Okay. Mix Pucks Aplenty, but Pucks, her preferred name, says the event is here to stay. And we had to ask, why the name the FatCon? Fat's just a descriptor. And I think that fat has been thrown at people of size as a way to tear us down, as a way to invalidate our humanity. Yeah. So Pucks says. I am fat. I am tall. I am black. Uh, you know, like these are things that describe who I am. And so I think that. By calling it FatCon, we're taking um, we're taking the sting out of that word. Yeah, she says fat critics who say the event is unhealthy or want to pick at the event because it promotes obesity are the ones with the real issues here. I think it's an unhealthy lifestyle to get on the internet and dehumanize people because you aren't attracted to those people. And I know that there are a lot of folks talking about oh, but what if there was a thin con that would be like fat phobic. <laughs> Yeah, well, she says there are conventions that cater to thinner people. Fat folks aren't going out and picketing those events. We don't care. Like, do your health and wellness. You know, and they had health and wellness doctors at the Fat Con. And uh, Normandy Park resident Emily Strovey attended the Fat Con. And according to her, there were no protesters outside the event, which they were expecting protesters. <laughs> I can't believe imagine that. protesting somebody. I know. I like, know. She says, life. I know. She says the event was epic uh, because it made me feel so and I'm probably going to sit here and get emotional, but um, (laughs) it made me feel so recognized and so seen. And Strovey says, I am a fat woman, but I'm an amazing fat woman. And because of the title of that con and that event, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take back that word and that what that means to me. So, you know, what are your thoughts, Mickey? You've yeah. shared your weight loss journey with us a, a lot. And, you yeah. know, you're, you're t- is it Ozempic or Manjaro that you're Manjaro, Manjaro, which is the, the weight loss. So what are your thoughts on this? I don't I don't necessarily think any of us should say anything about this. You're the one who can talk about it the most because right. you're open about your weight well, loss. Well, listen, you know, unless you've been extremely overweight, I don't believe that you should have an opinion of, of you know, how people lose weight or how people, you know, decide to live their lives. I mean, when I was interviewed, both women, I saw both women on camera. They are beautiful women. They both describe themselves as, you know, first I'm this, first I'm that, then I'm fat. Fat is just a description word mm-hmm. for them. And what they really want to do is take the power away from it. I I personally, I don't like the word fat. I think it's mean. I think mm-hmm. because of the fact that I was called fat so much growing mm-hmm. up and, and I was overweight. So I like to I like to be kind when using descriptor words to describe people who aren't thin, you know, obese. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I, and I've, I long have done away with the thinking of body shape equals health or unhealthy. But mm-hmm. everybody's bodies are different. You can be, you know, three times the size that I am and be able to lift more weight, run longer distances, and you know, have more stamina because we're all shaped different. Right? It's, exactly. it's ridiculous to think otherwise. Yeah, and and they were they were a, a little concerned about protesters because they they hurt. They saw and read all the opposition yeah. that was out there. Oh, you're promoting, you know, unhealthy. Uh, Living and lifestyle and, and and being fat is ugly and all those things. And oh. what this organization tried to do is just to say, no, you, you can be fat and 
beautiful Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so, um, you know, kudos to them, the fat con. I may not agree with the name because that word was just, I I, I heard it a lot growing up. It sounds like they're promoting binge eating, but you're saying no, they're not. No, they're not promoting binge eating at all. And you know what? You don't have to be fat and be a binge eater. You could be, you know, fat because obesity is a disease. And just like any other disease, you you have to get treatment for it. And I did ask them a little bit about that. You know, do you think that obesity is a a disease? And, and, you know, Pucks didn't really want to go that route, but said, hey, I'm beautiful, any size, stop labeling me and and let me celebrate my size my body yeah yeah mickey gomez thank you mickey you're very welcome Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.